Saturday. Saturday. Welcome to Detroit Table Talk. Listen, we've had a rough, you know, last hour. But we're here. We ready. We ready to um, you know, move along. Oh yeah, absolutely. Dro, how was your day? I can't complain. You can't complain either. No, I can't complain, you know. I can't complain at all. It's all good. Everybody in the room blessed. Everybody in the room blessed. I'm extremely blessed because, let me look into the camera. I have the best. Can you turn me down just a little bit? I have the best doctor ever. Like, I've had a couple of doctors. And no one, in no shape or form, have equal to the doctor that I have. That's awesome. When I talk about, first of all, black excellence, period. Period. But when I talk about bedside manners, you know, that's a big thing among people who go to the doctor. When you talk about being able to talk to your doctor about anything and ask questions, she doesn't rush you, she explains stuff to you, you know, and then she also get on you, you know, and then she she checks on you when you come. Like for me, let me just say, sometimes I don't come when I'm supposed to, <laughs> but I love when I get back because we have to um, go back from the last time I was there to catch up, right. you know, and not only you know concerning my body, she's also concerned with my mental health. That's awesome. So. I welcome Dr. Swain to Detroit Table Talk. Hello. Good evening, everybody. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Anytime. Anytime. Dr. Swain. Yes. How's your day going? It's going pretty good. I didn't think I was going to make it this evening, to be honest. (laughs) I had to get on and off several freeways. Um... And find out, you know, ramps weren't open to get on other freeways, but I made it. I'm here in one piece. That's and, all that matters. And see, that's why you 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 the goat. We appreciate you the greatest of here. all time. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so first, I'll start. I'm born and raised here in Michigan, uh, from Ypsilanti. Um, I went to undergrad at U of M. Go Blue. We got a game today against Purdue, so hopefully we get that win. Uh, I did my medical schooling at Wayne State University School of Medicine um, and completed my residency training at Detroit Medical Center uh, Hutzel Hospital in Detroit. Um, And then from there, went on to complete a fellowship in breast disease and surgery at the University of Michigan. And now I am practicing at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, where I've been over seven years. Love it. Yeah. Love it. So that means you deliver babies and everything. I do. I do. In fact, uh, last weekend I was on and delivered six babies. Wow. Six babies. I swear for Lord, I wish she was around when I had my babies. I would have been as happy as I don't know what. <laughs> but listen, I know because Dr. Swine got the, you know, she has to leave. Because, um, you know, she's supposed to be out enjoying her day off. But, you know, it's like I say, it's an honor for her to be here. So we want to talk about a few things, if we can, while we have her at the table. Um, first of all, let's start with some of the basic things. How often should women um, check in with their um, physician? Um, we recommend women should see their gynecologist um, at least once a year um, for an annual visit. So the annual visit entails... Um, you know, doing a breast exam, pelvic exam. Um, sometimes they may or may not have a pap smear, depending on whether or not they're due. Um, going over what um, shots they may need or other screenings, such as mammograms, colonoscopy, bone density, uh, for example. Um, and then, too, just to catch up and talk about how life is going, family's going. Yeah. Um, those things are, you know, just as important, too. That's awesome. That's awesome. So um, when it comes to, because I know, with a lot of African Americans, um, the statistics is high when it comes to women that have fibroids. 
what causes fibroids? What can we do? And what can we, what are some of the preventative measures from keeping the fibroids from growing? So you're correct. Um, the statistics for fibroids, particularly in African-American women, is high. Approximately one in four African-American women will have a fibroid by the time they are 25 years old, and about 80% of African-American women will have fibroids by the time they're 50, um, compared to white women um, who are about 70% by the time they're 50. Um, in terms of prevention, unfortunately, there isn't anything um, that we know of now that can prevent uh, fibroids um, from forming. Um, we fibroids essentially they're benign tumors that grow in typically the muscle of the uterus, and we think it becomes from um, from estrogen. We know that they tend to grow when women are um, still menstruating or having their periods, and then once they go into menopause, they stop growing. Mm -hmm. So the hypothesis is, is that it's it's a state of high estrogen um, that is likely is what causing these fibroids to form and to grow. So should women start making appointments with their gynecologist, you know, to get a surgery where, you know, it can prevent it. Prevent, yeah. So surgical intervention is just one option. Um, it can be an area possibly of definitive management, but there are, op there are other options too prior to that that are a little bit more conservative. So medication options, for example. Um, sometimes we use a medication called Lupron. Um, it's actually a GNR GNRH agonist, and what it does is it stops the ovary from producing hormones, for example, estrogen. And so when you stop the ovary from producing estrogen, then you stop giving the fibroid the food that it needs in order to grow. And so then it causes the fibroids to shrink. So that's one avenue. Um, some other avenues are giving uh, patients uh, medications like progesterone, for example. Progesterone is also a hormone produced by the ovary, but it's a hormone that opposes estrogen, so works against it. And so in doing that, you can also decrease estrogen levels and then, in fact, slow down the growth of fibroids. Um, I always say surgery is the last option. Uh, we do try to be a little bit more conservative uh, first. Now, is it <clears throat> is it certain kind of food that we need to watch, you know, so that it doesn't the fibroids don't feed off of it? So, in terms of um, foods, uh, that's a great question. So, there are some foods that can increase what we call exogenous estrogen, so estrogens from the outside. So, foods like that could be soy products, for example. Uh, tofu, soy milk, soybeans, uh, those things can increase the amount of estrogens in our body. Also, too, we have to be careful of high fatty foods. Uh, a lot of uh, women don't know that we also produce estrogen in our fat cells. Okay. So if we're eating high foods containing um, of a lot of fat, for example, now we're increasing the fat content in our body, which, which will then in turn increase the amount of estrogen in our body, too, as well. Wow. Wow. I know that um, <clears throat> for myself, um, some years ago, probably before the pandemic or whatever, um, I found out that I had um, fibroids. And um, because it seems like the last resort is always the first resort for African-American women. So um, <clears throat> a lot of times doctors are quick to get, not my doctor, but <laughs> there are doctors that are quick to um, recommend surgery as, you know, let's just get it done with so that we won't have to, you know, deal with it. How would you encourage women to, you know, maybe get a second opinion or? So to, yeah, so to answer a little bit about that. We do see that often, that particularly African-American women, when they come in, the first resort for them is surgery. Um, sometimes it's because by the time they do come in, they're, they're very large. And so some of the medical managements that we would have offered previously, um, we aren't able to offer. Um, and that actually is a result of access issues. Um, I'm sure you're aware, as most of our um, most women know, that African Americans in general, not just uh, women but men as well, have decreased access to health care. Yes. Um, and as a result, by the time they seek a physician for help with their issues, whether it be fibroids or anything else, it's too late for those conservative measures. And so then surgery le is left as their only option. Um, and so that's where a big part of that comes from. Uh, but also, I think it's really important too that not um, that most African Americans 
don't want to just jump right into surgery right away. And I don't yeah. know if this is a misconception that some yeah. uh, physicians may have that this is just what they want to do, or even if they come in saying it, it may be the only thing that they know correct. because no one has ever presented them with any other options. They didn't know anything else was possible. That's correct. So I think it's fair as, as physicians that we provide patients with all options available um, you know, with risk and benefits and allow them to make uh, an autonomous decision. We call it shared decision-making. Right. And that's why I love you because you... You, you give me the information and, you know, even sometimes when I make decisions, you'd be like, well, no, let's just, let's try this. <laughs> let's try this first. Now, what are some of the signs for women to look out for to have an indication that they may be dealing with fibroids? So that's a really good question. Um, so heavier menses, for example. So sometimes periods will become heavier, longer, um, painful periods. Uh, infertility even. Some of these women will have a difficult time getting pregnant or they may be able to get pregnant but are having miscarriages and not understanding why. Uh, they may have increased frequency of urination or constipation. Um, just overall um, abdominal discomfort or bloating are some um, symptoms that someone may present with who has fibroids. Wow. Wow. I know um, <clears throat> I spoke with my state representative, you know, um, some months ago because um, she had ended up having fibroids and end up having have, having happened to have surgery but she wasn't given the information you know that you don't necessarily have to have surgery so I know she's been really on a campaign to educate you know African-American women concerning um, fibroids so it's it's, it's I, I I'm starting to learn a lot more because I didn't even know it exists you know, know, we go to the doctor and we get our pap smears and, you know, you go and get another test where they, you know, can determine how big the fibroids are. And I had no clue, none. Um, but, you know, one thing I've asked you about, I think even the last time I came to the doctor some weeks ago, um, menopause. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm just ready to be in menopause. I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna lie to you. So no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> oh, well, let me just say this only because I don't want, you know, no menstrual, you know, <laughs> no menstrual cycles anymore. Well, well, hey, I can help you with that, and you could still be uh, perimenopause. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of women I know that are in menopause, they try a lot of health um, herbs. Correct. What if those don't work? What can they be given um, as far as a prescription mm -hmm. to help with that? Um, before I answer that question, I do just want to define what menopause is. Yes, um, for those of you who may not understand, so menopause is a state where a woman has been without a period for one year. Too um, long, too long. <laughs> right. Um, and they may or may not have some associated symptoms of vasomotor symptoms, which are hot flashes, for example, your own personal summer um, is what some women will describe. Yeah. They also will um, have uh, symptoms of uh, vaginal dryness um, or discomfort with intercourse, decreased libido, weight gain, hair loss, uh, loss of bone mass, as well as um, increasing cholesterol can happen with menopause. Uh, now, in terms of treatment, you ask, for example, it just depends on what symptoms they're having. Uh, so you spoke of some integrative measures, is what we call them, okay. uh, or herbs that some people, but if those don't work, there are prescriptions that me as a provider can provide for them, either hormone re um, replacement therapy or HRT, which some have heard of, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, because I know people hear hormone replacement therapy, and sometimes they think of uh, negative things, but yeah. in fact, it's not. It, there are some great things with hormone replacement therapy. But then there are alternative prescription medications, for example, mood stabilizers um, for those who are having mood swings. So you may have heard of uh, things like Celexa or Lexapro, yes. Prozac. Uh, there are also medications that can help with hot flashes as well. One of them is called Effexor, which um, is a known medication we use for breast cancer patients who are undergoing hot flashes because of the chemotherapy. We use that most commonly. Um, other thing, another medication would be a blood pressure medication called clonidine. The other name of it's called catapress. You probably have heard of that before too. Uh, that also can be used to help with hot flashes too. It comes in the form of a transdermal patch that you wear. Now Prozac, isn't that a psychological drug? So Prozac, correct. So Prozac is a medication that um, can be used for anxiety or depression. Okay. Um, it falls under a uh, selective. Uh, 
um, uh, SSRI or serotonin selective receptor okay. um, uh, modulators. So yes, it can also help too for those who are suffering from anxiety or depression. So what are the, um, I know we, you stop your menstrual cycle for a year. Mm-hmm. What are some of the symptoms to say that you are in premenopausal? Okay, so perimenopause? Yes. Peri, is it called, what is it? Perimenopause. Perimenopause. Yep, yeah. So perimenopause um, symptoms can, like I described, can be hot flashes. Sometimes uh, women will describe them more. They'll have them at night or night sweats. They may notice that they go to bed and they're fine, and then all of a sudden they're, like, hot and they're throwing the covers off and, yes. and you know, have the window up. And if they have a partner, their partner's over there freezing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I know all too well. <laughs> um, and then, like I said, weight gain, too. But you have to have all those or some of those side effects and not have a menstrual cycle for 12 months. So not necessarily. The only thing you need to have is not have a menstrual cycle for 12 months. Okay. So the other associated symptoms some women will have and some may oh, not. Okay. Um, just as a, a fun fact. Unfortunately, us women of color, Latino women and African-American women are more likely to actually have um, symptoms such as vasomotor symptoms, and they are more likely to last longer than women, um, white women, for example. Wow. I was very upset when I, you know, stopped my menstrual cycle, and I hit one day before 12 months. And, and that meant I had to start all over again. Correct. Not it. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't on my side <laughs> so um what's another thing um I know we have to have breast exams what's what's and, and we're taught as we're younger um women we're taught how to do self breast exams but do we really know what we're looking for because we have little nodules or whatever mm-hmm. in our breasts anyway how do we know when we should be alarmed so that's a really good question. I get that from a lot of patients. Um, you know, most women will say, you know, my breasts just feel lumpy. I'd, I can't tell if something is wrong or not. Yeah. Uh, so what I really kind of coach and, and, and uh, my patients along is what we call something called um, self-breast awareness. So in other words, knowing what do your breasts feel like. Okay. Everyone has a different type of breast. So there's four different types. There's fatty breasts, fibroglandular breasts, which are the ones that feel really lumpy. Then you have heterogeneously dense breasts, which is a mixture of fibroglandular breasts and dense breasts. And then you have women who have extremely dense breasts. And those are the breasts that are kind of more like stiff, so more feel like an implant type of breast. So you don't really feel as much, uh, feel lumpy as much. Um, what I explain to patients is if you feel a lump or something that feels like a lump in your breast, what you need to do is check the opposite breast in that same location. If it feels pretty symmetrical, then that's just your normal breast tissue. It's probably your fibroglandular tissue or lobules. But if it feels a stark difference or this, is, this isn't the same, then that's when you need to seek um, attention from your physician. And that's once a year? breast exams? So we do breast exams once a year for women who are at average risk for breast cancer. But for someone who's high risk for breast cancer, we actually have them come into the office for uh, breast exams twice a year, as well as having a mammogram once a year and an MRI once a year. Mammogram. So for me, I'm just, you know, I'm not in the medical field. But you would think the medical field has come so far with technology. Mm -hmm. However, they still haven't come up with anything that makes it more comfortable for us women, you know, to want to go in and have this test done. So, uh, unfortunately, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) But we're working on things. So, um, you know, there there is MRI, but unfortunately MRI is... um, is saved for women, again, like I said, who are at increased risk or high risk for breast cancer. So women who, for an example, may have a genetic mutation that predisposes them to breast cancer. Uh, So insurances won't cover it if you're average risk. Um, Now there is a new uh, technology called MBI or molecular breast imaging, which is a kind of an MRI and mammogram combined. So unfortunately the technique is same thing as a mammogram. So in other words, your breasts are pressed into two plates but you receive contrast like you would with an MRI. And so if there is a abnormality in the breast, it will um, uptake that contrast so that it's easier for a radiologist to visualize and not miss a potential cancer. Okay. (laughs) I've been running. 
Monday, I'm going to make me an appointment awesome. and, and get it taken care of. Um, it's just cold, gloomy, and clammy, and everything else in that room. But I'm going to go. What are some of the health disparities that you see with African-Americans, um, women? So... Um Potential. So specifically for our, let's talk about you know breast cancer because we were talking a little bit about um, you know breast cancer screening. So African American women um, unfortunately are more susceptible to developing breast cancer earlier, um, and also more likely to die from breast cancer than their white counterparts. In fact, they are 42 percent higher mortality rate, so death rate, compared to white women who are diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, they also are more likely to be diagnosed with a more aggressive breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer. And that is actually more susceptible in younger women in general. Um, the other uh, concerns that we have in terms of uh, African-American women and health disparities are that of fertility. Yeah. Um, you know, being that I specialize in women with breast cancer, um, I do have to talk to a lot of women about fertility and fertility preservation um, because the treatments of breast cancer can impact a woman's fertility. The problem is the state of Michigan does not mandate employers cover right. um, fertility treatment. And so therefore, most women in general don't have coverage for fertility preservation. So you have now women who are black women, for example, who are more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer at a younger age, which means they're going to be more likely to have infertility issues, which they already have anyway, mm -hmm. because of other reasons. Obesity, for example, puts women at higher risk of infertility. Okay. Uh, fibroids, and we know black women are more likely to be diagnosed with fibroids at younger ages, 25, as I talked about. Endometriosis, which we didn't talk about, but also, too, can affect um, African-American women, too. Uh, which also can impact infertility. So you have all of these other outside things, and then you add, huh? What is it called? Endometriosis. endometriosis. What is that? Is that a sexual transmitted disease? No. So endometriosis is a condition um, that can cause infertility in women. It causes severe pelvic pain, okay. um, particularly with the menses. It can cause pain outside of that. They might have uh, pain with bowel movements, pain with intercourse. Mm -hmm. um, periods are usually much heavier. Uh, they also can cause scarring or implants. How do you get that? So that's a great question. Unfortunately, scientists have not figured out how it happens. Okay. We have a hypothesis that we think that there is a backflow of blood through the tubes mm -hmm. that goes out into the pelvic cavity and causes little implants onto the bowel, the bladder, the pelvic wall, sometimes even all the way up into the underarm, so the axilla sometimes. Um, and that can cause this these these infertility issues that we can see with um, endometriosis as well as the pain as I spoke about. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of research still being done on endometriosis and trying to figure out what is the physiology behind it? Why does this happen? But we don't know as of now. When you talk about health disparities, um, a lot of, and I'm saying a lot of women because I, I read about it, I'm constantly talking to my girlfriends, you know, about different issues they're having with their bodies. Right. Um, when we go to the doctor, why is it that we still are not taken serious when we're saying that, you know, our body is in pain, there's something going on, and we're constantly just pushed to the side? Like, it's something wrong with us. Well, part of the problem is there was this thought for many years that black women particularly, have we have higher pain tolerance, you know, so we're not in pain. Um, you know, if you look at the literature just in obstetrics, for example, um, you know, we were given less pain medication mm -hmm. after a cesarean section or a vaginal birth because, you know, we're not in pain uh, or less likely to receive epidural at a, you know, at an earlier time compared to our other counterparts, again, because we, we can't be suffering as in much pain. So there's this and, and, and this a lot of this dates back to, you know, during times of experimentation and slavery and, and Jim Crow error. Um, the other issue is that there are not enough of us who are practicing physicians who can relate and understand the black experience, for, for example. Um, still, you know, providers are predominantly white. Yes. Um, only 5% of active physicians today are African-American, and of those 5%, 2% are African-American male. 
um, which is even worse for our African American males out here, um, who also are also suffering just as much or more than African American women when it comes to mortality and morbidity um, disease. Um, so, it you know it's it's very difficult thing to combat. I mean, I think the first thing we need to do is try to um, improve the number of physicians that are going into healthcare that look like us, because we we there's been studies to show that we take better care of our own. And unfortunately, because of the percentage of um, medical, black medical doctors that are out there, it's only so many patients you guys can take. Correct. You know, so that's, you know. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Correct. You know, um, and unfortunately, ladies, Dr. Swine is not taking any more patients <laughs> I'm not taking any patients. Oh, my I, God. I wish he was, but... <laughs> Yes, I'm, I'm trying to move up in the world. That's why I'm, yes, hope, she I'm is. hoping that one day, you know, I can, um, you know, work on a national level um, in terms of healthcare policy and try. You know, that's already in the works. It, it, you know what? I know that it is. It is. I just got to get there, and you know, it helps fight some of these inequities. But I know, I know what needs to be done, and I'm, and the way it needs to be done is that we have to sit at the table. Yeah. We have to be able to make decisions. Yeah. Because. In the grand scheme of it all, no one's going to make a better decision for you than you. Yeah. In other words, you need people that look like you up there speaking on your behalf yes. and um, in efforts to make sure that we have access to health care, that it's affordable health care for us, um, that we're not turned away, that we're listened to, that we're not judged um, in order to help um, close the gap in health care inequity in, um, in this country. And now with um, health care being so expensive, you know, I have health care through my, you know, my employer. However, me paying into this, you know, health insurance, they have dropped off a lot of things that they recover. So when it's time to go and see the doctor or when you have to make a decision about making an appointment, now you have to choose because it's like, do I have the money to pay either out of pocket right. or pay the high percentage that I'm going to be responsible for? You know, then you start having these inner battles with your mind, like, well, there's nothing really wrong with me, right. you know, or can I last a little bit longer? And then, unfortunately, we wait until we just can't wait any longer where sometimes we're at the last resort when it comes to the, you know, to the doctor because we've had to put it off so long. Right. I mean, obviously, it's easy for me to say, you know, don't put a price tag on your life. Yeah. Um, and I often quote that a lot uh, to my patients um, because the truth is we're going to spend the money, so whether it's on the front end or the back end, yeah. it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I, and like I said, I know it's easy for me to say, um, but we also have to be advocates for ourselves okay. um, as well and put the pressure on our providers, whether they're physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, nurses, um, physician assistants, mm -hmm. to... Um, to take us seriously. Um, so how would you how would you coach a young lady in in speaking on behalf or um, or champion for herself when it comes to speaking with doctors when it comes to like pain medications mm -hmm. and stuff like that? If you're constantly telling the doctor no, I'm from a one to ten, mm -hmm. I'm at a nine out of ten. I need something, and he's saying no. We'll wait. You'll we'll wait. How do you get through to that doctor to let them know, no, I need you to hear what I'm saying. I know my body. Um, so, you know, sometimes, again, it, it may take having to go to two, three different physicians to be heard. Um, and, and sometimes, unfortunately, we have to do that until we get to someone to listen to our voice. Uh, but the other thing is nice is to so do your research, too, as well, and come in with questions and saying, you know, I, I notice I have this, this, and this, and this. I think maybe I might have this condition, you know. Could I do you, that all the you, time. Yeah, and there and I love it. I love when patients come in and they have, and some I physicians are, in, some physicians are intimidated by yes. it. They are, but for me, I love it. I brag all the time that my patients are the smartest patients. I don't, I don't, I don't get a kick out of knowing more information than them. No, I want them to leave knowing just as much as I know or more when they leave out of my office. That's super important to me. Um, so I think, you know, doing your homework and, you know, there are, there are sites that, that are uh, 
like PubMed, for example, that are credible or up to date. What that is are, it called? PubMed, okay. um, or up-to-date that are credible websites that you can use to get information from. Because you're right, you don't know, you know, there are things on Google that, you know, are not true. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it's hard for, for some people to decipher, well, what should I, you know, look at as truth and what should I not? Um, so I always try to gear people towards more credible um, areas to look for. So I have a question, and I'm not sure how you're going to answer it, mm-hmm. um, but it's something that needs, you know, an answer. Okay. We have a lot of women, um, and the number is growing. And mm-hmm. and actually now it has fallen over to our, our males as well. Um, me and we have not forgot about you. We do have an African-American doctor that is coming to the table. Mm-hmm. But today <laughs> we're dealing with women. the women. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of women that are getting the um, BBLs, mm-hmm. that are getting the um, breast implants. Mm-hmm. Um, tummy tucks how was that how was that working or not working for our bodies as far as longevity right um you know I would never tell somebody not to do something if if that's what they feel like they need to do for their own self-esteem or if they feel like that makes them look better I don't know should I get you know know, so (laughs) so So I don't, I don't really necessarily, I don't tell people they should or tell people they shouldn't. Um, um, but in terms of things for implants, for example, just because I know I deal, you know, my air, air specialty is breast. Um, you know, the thing about implants is if you're going to get those, what I say is you just need to make sure you have proper follow-up. Okay. Um, it is recommended for women who have implants, they should have actually MRI screening instead of mammogram screening. Um, because the implant can sometimes uh, get in the way of being able to visualize an occult, you know, tumor or cancer in the breast. For example, um, there um, there was a, and I forgive me, I forget the name, but there was a type of implant. It had um, texture to it, is what it was. That they were finding a rare type of breast cancer, which, from my understanding now, plastic surgeons are no longer using this implant. But it's something too to talk to a plastic surgeon about if you're thinking about getting implants to avoid the textured type of implant. Okay. Um, and then um, if you're going to get them, making sure that when they tell you you need to have them removed or, or exchanged, if that's what you wish to do, that to follow up and to do that and to follow those recommendations um, so that, you know, a cancer is not uh, unidentified. In terms of uh, tummy tucks, um, you know, tummy tuck, it, it's a you know, relatively safe procedure. Okay. Um, I will say this, and being a surgeon, it can make things more difficult um, in terms of performing surgery when someone has a tummy tuck, particularly from trying to do a laparoscopic surgery um, because the abdomen now is very taut and tight. And so being able to inflate the abdomen with air becomes more difficult. So there's that um, aspect. Um, now, Brazilian butt lifts, um, there's not a whole lot that it will impact in terms of gynecological things. Um, uh, it's just a matter of are you going to the right person for that. So making sure that you see a board-certified plastic surgeon and not some, you know, a cosmetic surgeon because there's a difference. Oh, okay. um, and you want to, yeah, you want to make sure that you you do your homework. So, and, cos- are are you saying cosmetic? Um, a, so not- a, yeah, there are two oh, different things. So actually, a cosmetic surgeon may not necessarily have been a general surgeon. Oh, um, there are people that come from other specialties that could have done a fellowship in cosmetic surgery. A plastic surgeon is someone who has done this their their entire training. It's a seven year residency followed by fellowship afterwards. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's really important that they see a board certified plastic surgeon. So just don't go because something's cheaper. Sometimes cosmetic surgeries tend to be cheaper, but there's a reason why it's cheaper. They're not board certified. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. But we're gonna talk about, you know, me having one no. Teach his own. Um I wanna say, um I think that was the all the questions that um I that came in. Okay. Okay, so can you kind of sum it up for us yeah. when it comes to um what we are expected to No, wait a minute. The um, what is it called? A colonoscopy. A colonoscopy. At what age do you start looking at that? So that's changed over time. It's forty-five. Oh, is it forty-five? Yeah, forty-five years old. Um, and every um, 
10 years if there's no family history or everything's fine. If someone has a family history of colon cancer or, some sort, again, some sort of genetic mutation that predisposes them to colon cancer, then they might have to have a colonoscopy maybe every three years or every five years. Oh, I'm well past my... Uh-oh. Can you, right, can you sum up for us um, when it comes to, um, oh, before, look, mm-hmm. I thought of another question before. Yeah. How do women take care of their vajayjay? Oh, okay. Because I know learning growing mm-hmm. up or even, you know, mm-hmm. you being my physician, yeah, I am addicted to smell goods. Okay. So I, you know, I, you know, I love lotions. I love perfumes. Yeah. I just love that stuff, and I know you've gotten on me a couple of times. <laughs> so can so, you tell us how to? So the vagina, <laughs> aka vajayjay, right, <laughs> cleans itself actually. Um, so there's nothing extra that any woman needs to do, and in fact, you need to be careful if about some of the extra things that we do. There's a lot of uh, feminine products over the counter that actually can cause uh, pH imbalances. Um, And when you have a pH imbalance, then you end up killing the normal flora of the vagina that keeps it clean and keeps it uh, from foul odors, for example. So when women are using things like douches or uh, vaginal soaps that they're putting inside, it can cause um, a bacteria called Gardnerella to grow, which then causes bacteria vaginosis, which there are a lot of women who suffer from, and it causes a foul, fishy-like odor. Um, And um, so women just need to be careful not to interfere with the flora of the vagina because then they end up with an issue of BV, which can then become chronic. And then it's a constant back and forth with the gynecologist um, every other month with this issue. So are you saying no soap or is it a particular soap? So you can use soap, but what we recommend is usually a dove, uh, something mild, and only on the outside. There should be no soap that goes inside because soap is actually a basic item. And so the vagina is supposed to be acidic, less than a pH of 4.5. And when you're using something basic inside, it interferes with the normal pH and hence pH imbalance. It's a thing, ladies. It's a real thing. I'm still learning because I still love my soap. <laughs> you can use it everywhere else, just on the outside, nowhere else. <laughs> so give us a summary of what women, um, you know, what test comes when and, you know, mm-hmm. how we should really. So um, I would say the, you know, first trip, like, for example, to the gynecologist can really start really at any age, depending on, you know, what may be going on. You know, we see, you know, adolescents too as well. But in terms of routine screening, that doesn't start till age 21. So 21 is when a woman will receive her first pap smear. And pap smears are to check for cervical cancer. So I just want to make sure that that's clear. Um, Just because a a gynecologist places a speculum inside the vagina does not mean you received a pap smear. That's, that's, a pap smear is, is you need to see a, uh, there's like a little jar and there's a brush that we use and we brush mm-hmm. the inside of the cervix and place those cells into the jar and the pathologist looks to make sure that there's no cervical cancer. Um, women between the ages of 21 and 25 are recommended to get sexually transmitted disease or tra- sexually transmitted um, infection testing annually um, or sooner if they're having concerns. After the age of 25, we don't routinely check for STDs unless the woman is, you know, has some concerns. And the reason for that is because the rate of STDs after the age of 25 dramatically drops, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's why. Um, and then once a woman hits the age of um, 30, her pap smears will go from every three years, you know, between 21 and 29, to every five years with an HPV test. So HPV stands for human papillomavirus. It is the virus that can increase the risk of cervical cancer. Um, there's also vaccines that are offered. Um, you said HPV. To, correct, HPV. Now, is that the, I don't know what it was, but it's something that they just started that younger young, younger women can get like a shot? Correct, a vaccine. So vaccines are actually given before they ever see me. Um, okay. They're given by their pediatrician. So they get, Because that's so new, what about us women that are in our, our um, later years? Uh, so actually, it's not new, actually. So the HPV oh. vaccine came out in 
probably about 2012, if not a little bit before then. Okay. It's just that we didn't start utilizing it as much until I would say the last few years. Okay. Um, because there was a lot of uh, political, okay. you know, okay. <laughs> over it, it. But <laughs> they thought it was going to make kids have sex. And you're like, oh, okay. Uh, whatever you say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, the laws did change. And that it is new now that HPV can be given to both men and women. Wow. Um, and you can give it to them and insurance will cover it up until age 45. So it used to be that insurance would only cover the vaccine up to age 26. Okay. So we've increased the age of which you can get it. But the recommendation is to actually give the vaccine in both boys and girls between the ages of 11 and 12. Okay. Um, then by the time a woman hits the age of 40, uh, we start mammogram screening. Um, and that's done every year. Again, unless they're high risk for breast cancer, then that's a whole set of uh, rules for them. Um, we also then, by the time a woman reaches 45, we recommend colonoscopy. And again, every 10 years, as long as they're not at an increased risk. Um, and then by the time a woman hits the age of um, 50, they'll be assessed about whether or not they're at high risk for bone loss. If they're not, then they will get their first um, bone scan to check for osteoporosis and where do they get that done bone scan usually done in radiology right no but what i'm saying is that through our internal medicine doctor or gyn it doesn't matter okay um a primary care or okay. yep or gynecologist will order a, a bone scan for them to do and that's usually done at the age of 65 again unless a woman has increased risk prior to that okay um and that would be the other um only other screening that we do um for women so there you have it. Joe, you got any questions? Uh, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I did get some, a lot of information. Miss Monique, do you have any board. questions? Um, yes, I do. Um, my daughter has um, really bad cycles. Um, she um, went and they put her on some birth control pills, okay. and that actually made her cycle worse. Um, it kind of made it go longer, and then she ended up getting the shot, and that really helped. Okay. But um, she's been having issues with her legs, mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. thought that she was having blood clots. Mm. So um, she went to, to a hematologist. Yeah, hematologist. Yep. Hematologist about it, and he's telling her to stay off the estrogen. Okay. But so she's still having really, really bad cycles. What happens to her, she gets... Um, she throws up. Okay. Um, sometimes she gets hot, like, mm -hmm. but it'll go away. Okay. And, um, you know, it, it's usually bad, like, one or two days. Okay. And I'm, if she can't do the, the, you know, the, um. Estrogen. Yeah, the estrogen. Mm -hmm. What, what other things do you recommend for her? Yeah, so that's a great question. So for mm -hmm. women who have contraindications to estrogen, there are progesterone-only methods, which is the shot you referred to. Mm -hmm. It's called the Depo-Provera. Mm -hmm. So Provera is a form of progesterone. Mm -hmm. So it actually works against estrogen. It's like its enemy. It's mm -hmm. like a, so it's like its arch enemy. Um, and what it does is it helps to stabilize the uterine lining. And by stabilizing the uterine lining, you have less bleeding or no bleeding at all. So estrogen actually builds the lining up and progesterone tears it down. Mm -hmm. um, so when you give someone progesterone in constant form, it then doesn't allow the ability of estrogen to allow the lining to grow. So now they don't have these heavy periods anymore. The periods aren't as long. The, the pain is less. So someone like your daughter, the depo shot is, is perfect for her, but also there are other things that are progesterone only. So there's Provera pills she could take instead if she wanted to. Um, if she wanted to do an intrauterine device or an IUD, so there's progesterone-containing IUDs. The Mirena is an example. There's a progesterone-containing um, implant that goes in the arm called the Nexplanon that are options too as well. And again, all of those things do is they stabilize the lining to reduce the symptoms of um, heavy bleeding, longer bleeding, and cramping. Um, but some of the other symptoms you described, you mentioned nausea. I don't know if she has bloating or cramping or other things too. But yeah, really bad cramps, really heavy. Mm -hmm. So some women also have something called PMS or premenstrual syndrome, mm -hmm. which is also a thing. Um, so um, just to give you guys a little bit about history, um, in medieval times they used to call it hysteria. Um, and women were hysterical. And so what they would do to treat this hysteria is they would give them a hysterectomy. 
that was the way to treat um, full hysterectomy. Everything would go. But the reality is, in today's world, it's actually PMS is what it is. Mm -hmm. And so there is actually a uh, questionnaire that women can um, fill out mm -hmm. about each of the symptoms they're having and when they have them and how severe they are to allow the physician to determine whether this is PMS versus PMDD, which is a more severe PMS. <clears throat> and then they could be prescribed not only uh, medications like the depot shot or birth control, but also, too, we talked about this earlier, things like Prozac, so like an SSRI to help stabilize the mood if they're also having mood swings and mood changes during this time, too. Okay. Thank you so You're much. welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so listen, ladies, um, when you're thinking about a gynecologist, I mean, I hate to say it, don't just pick anybody. Don't go to the yellow pages, the white pages. And just scroll down, and the first one you see, you pick, you call, you make an appointment. Do your research. You know, um, whatever health care that they are connected to, they should actually be on that website. And you can go and you can read their bio. You can actually see where people have rated the doctor. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, um, my doctor has got, like, all five stars. I don't <laughs> She's a five-star doctor. First of all, do you know how many people I had to pay to do that? No, I'm just kidding. I actually saw that. She got five out of five. That's wild. So one of my patients told me to go look at myself. I don't even look at my, and I did. I was like, oh, my God, how is that even possible? I was like, who did I pay to get this? No, did you see, did you read all the wonderful accurate? I, I, I did read them. And, and every it, last one of them was correct. I It makes me feel very good you know, um, that I'm, I'm blessed. And, and you know, how much more, more. Um, African-American women doctors are needed. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. So, but I do want to put a plug because I think that um, Henry Ford actually does a terrific job they of do. hiring um, black physicians. So they in do. my department, we do have other black OBGYNs. One of them is one of my good friends. So Dr. Leah Ann Roberts, I'll give a shout out to her. She's amazing. Leah Ann um, Roberts. Is she taking patients? She is. Okay, um, guys, Leah Ann Roberts. She's a friend of mine. Um, and Dr. Paige Kimber is also another black physician who's also very great. Are they on the boulevard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And Natasha Prince as well. So um, Dr. Jeanette Espy, shout out to my black women doctors. So we are here and we are ready to serve you. And don't be shy. When you call the Henry Ford main line, ask them when you're looking for a GYN, say, I want a black doctor. It's perfectly fine. It's perfectly yeah. fine, whether they offended or not. You know, they'll be okay, but you'll have what you need. Right. <laughs> That's what's most important. That's mm -hmm. most important. You know, um, we want to see, you know, someone that looks like us, that understands what we are going through in our bodies. Not saying that the other, you know, physicians don't, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so we want to thank Dr. Swain for coming to the table. I so appreciate it. So thank appreciate you. It. And I, um, I pray that your questions were answered. Um, for the people who will be watching the replay, go back and listen, um, especially to the ending part the last maybe five, ten minutes, and she gives you a rundown at what age you're supposed to have different tests done. Um, so, we again, we just want to thank Dr. Swine thank for you, coming thank out. You. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And then, again, don't, don't be discouraged. <laughs> we got a male physician coming. We just got to work out his schedule, <laughs> you know, because they are so in demand, you yes. know. <laughs> it took, what, it took months. Yes. For us to clear a, a spot for Dr. Swine. But <laughs> nevertheless, she's here at Detroit Table Talk, and we love it. One um, more plug that I put. Yes, ma'am. Henry Ford is actually working on, um, right now, and I'm a part of the mission. Um, this is for black men in terms of um, colon cancer screening. So oh. colon cancer is something that's very prevalent in black men and killing them at alarming rates. Um, and a lot of it, again, is access issues and um, you know, having colonoscopies at far later ages than they're supposed to. It really didn't become in the, uh, a big issue or, or seen as an issue or um, seen in, until Chad Bowsman, you know, died of colon cancer. Mm -hmm. But that is actually something that a lot of black men are going through right now. So Henry Ford is actually on a mission to help increase access and in making sure that black men get colonoscopies um, before it's too late. So they can just pick up the phone and call the uh, main line and say, mm -hmm. "Hey, uh, mm -hmm. open it." Yeah, they don't even they don't even necessarily have to have a primary care because that was an issue. You know, okay. P 
People think they have to have a primary care. Same thing with a mammogram, actually. Women, you don't even have to have an order from a primary care physician oh. to get a mammogram. You can just schedule a mammogram. Oh, that's, mm-hmm. that's good to know. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I always felt like I had to wait for, you know, an order to be put in. Because most things you do, right. you know, you have to have a referral. Well, the advantage of the order is it's going to come to someone so they have the results. That's the advantage. Okay. Okay. Um, but in order to get one, you don't, at Henry Ford, you don't need a doctor to put in a mammogram order for you. You can actually just get one. Mm-hmm. Well, there you have it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, next week at the table, we will have Mr. Rick. He's our firearm safety um, expert. You know, he's been featured on every television station um, around. He'll be at the table talking to us about um, gun safety. You know, and we'll be talking about the different um, violent acts that have been taking place and how parents, as well as anyone who has a CPL or doesn't have a CPL, how to keep our firearms safe, you know, from our young um, young people. So we'll see you back at the table next week at 5 o'clock. Peace. Peace. <laughs>